0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we speak to filmmaker Martin Dolbemeyer. Over his 35-year career, he's made nearly three dozen films that highlight the spiritual luminaries of the 20th century, from the Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh to Mother Teresa. Today, he talks to us about his creative process and his most recent film, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. Stay tuned. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Martin Doblemeyer. Martin holds degrees in religious studies and broadcast journalism and three honorary degrees in fine arts and humane letters, and since 1984, he's produced and directed more than 30 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. Martin combines a lifelong interest in religion with a passion for storytelling. Over the years, he's traveled on location to more than 40 countries to profile numerous religious leaders, spiritual communities, heads of state, and Nobel laureates. His films explore how belief can lead individuals to extraordinary acts and how spirituality creates and sustains communities, and how faith is lived in extraordinary ways. Today we're going to be talking about his recent film, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story, that is being released nationwide in March. Martin Doblemeyer, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. So, I am excited to talk about this film, and I'm excited to talk about your career-making films, but in order for my listeners to really follow who we're talking about, we probably should begin talking about Dorothy Day and a little bit about kind of who she was and where she came from, because I realize that folks may have heard the name, they may have heard about the Catholic worker movement, but they may not know much about what motivated her or what her causes were. If you were to give me three or four sentences in broad strokes about kind of who Dorothy Day was and what she meant for Catholicism in the 20th century, let's start there and then we'll go deeper.
1: No, that's a good starting place. Dorothy Day, I think, was the most fascinating, interesting, and challenging figure of the 20th century in the world of religion, faith, and spirituality. When she died in 1980 at the age of 83, they were already writing the eulogy that said that she was the most interesting, inspiring, and important figure in the Catholic Church for the 20th century. And I think what's happened in the last many years is that she's only grown in reputation and, and expanded it even further beyond the Catholic world. She's become an iconic figure in religion well beyond her Catholic roots. So I think that's what's important. What's to, to know Dorothy Day, the starting place is that she is a convert to Catholicism. I think that sort of propelled her to do what it was that she was doing in a, in a somewhat almost reckless way. But what she did is she began starting a newspaper, still going today. She began it in 1933, David. It's called the Catholic Worker Paper. And it was, the purpose of it was to speak truth to power. And raise up the most important political and social issues of the time. And it's still going. It's still in print now since 1933. And spinning off from that, the next dimension was someone actually asked her, you know, you're writing in these newspapers about hospitality, houses of hospitality. And you're telling people how to welcome and to be a a, a friend to the stranger and the poor person. Where are these houses that you've created? And Dorothy Day said, well, we've been writing about them, but we, we don't actually have any houses. And as a result of that, uh, she said, you know, this is where it's going. I'm going to instinctively follow that. And they went right out right after that, got the first house. And now, here we are, years after her passing, there are 250 Catholic worker houses spread out all across America and some beyond that continue now to operate, to feed the hungry, provide shelter to to the homeless, and, and to do the very basic works of mercy that people are calling for. So she did all of that. And yet, if you want to imagine her, she is the consummate grandmother. And that's the image that I think a lot of people have of Dorothy Day. She, in fact, was the grandmother to nine grandchildren. And yet, grandma would, in fact, be... You know, in the morning she would be taking care of the grandchildren and in the afternoon she'd go out and get arrested because she was protesting how monies from the American federal government were being used to build nuclear weapons when they should have actually been used to taking care of the poor in America so she was uh, a grandmother and an anarchist, she was a journalist she she wraps all of it up and there are things that seem to be rather disparate in her life and yet in the same way she embodies the unification of all those things and that's what I think make her makes her dynamic and interesting and a real. Really
0: good story. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, and so much of there to dig into. So, let me just ask some follow on questions. So, we talked about the fact that she founded the Catholic Worker Movement, and I think my listeners may be familiar that within the wider Catholic Church, so you hear in Catholic Worker the word Catholic in the wider Catholic Church they may understand that in addition to priests there are orders like Franciscans and Carmelites and Dominicans. And so was the Catholic worker movement something like that? Was it like the Jesuits or was it something different within Catholicism?
1: It was different, uh, David, because it was totally independent. Those other orders that you talk about, the Dominicans and the Paulist Fathers and the Franciscans, all go to Rome essentially and ask for the permission, the imprimatur of the official church, to open up an order of of people and fall under the order of the pope. Dorothy Day did nothing of the kind. She just decided that she was going to open up this paper and start writing calling it the Catholic Worker. She decided that she was going to open up the houses that were really needed. This is 1933 in the in the right in the teeth of the Depression. 12 million people are homeless, out on the streets, unemployed. And she just decides, well, the church isn't doing this. I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to open up these houses and see if we can start feeding people and taking care of them. And she wants to call it Catholic. And she calls it the Catholic worker. And it's Catholic because she believes that the Catholic Church had a social program for people that needed to be honored and recognized. And she was going to do it. And worker because that's where her heart always was. She was out there. She she had communist leaning. She was never a communist. She was never card-carrying communist. But she was, you know, she was wrapped up like everybody else in the in the 19-teens and 20s to see that there's going to be this huge social upheaval that's going to allow people of the lowest classes to finally get a voice, to finally be able to get some sense of power and unity. And she stood right with them. And so the notion of Catholic worker was both uh, problematic for some Catholic institutions who didn't like that, and yet at the same time, I think most directly spoke to what she wanted to do, which is to say the Catholic Church has a program for people
0: in need, and
1: we're going to be going out laboring in the fields to make sure this happens.
0: Now, my understanding is that she flirted with communism. She she hung out with communists and anarchists when she became Catholic, and we can talk a little bit about how she came to become Catholic as we progress in the conversation, but my understanding is that when she became Catholic, she said that she found that Christianity was an even more radical approach to life than communism was. And let's just linger there for a minute. What What did she mean when she said that?
1: Well, I think that her purpose was to say, look, we have, pl- we have millions and millions of people who are unemployed, underemployed, working in terrible working conditions we have to do something about this and that in fact the catholic church had written documents rerum novarum had been out there for a while as a document that talked about you know the rights of workers to, sort of responding to the industrial revolution and unbridled capitalism and what was going on she wanted to be out there campaigning to say look actually the church the catholic church wants to speak to you we we have something to say to you but she didn't necessarily feel as though it had to be done institutionally if it could be that would be Great, but if it's not going to be done, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And for her, this there was, um, you know, there's there's commentary in the film that I think speaks accurately to the fact that there were a lot of people in the nineteen teens and the early twenties who saw that capitalism had not fulfilled the great dream, and that there were still so many people who were who were really in need, and that. A lot of intellectual people were leaning towards communist or at least socialism. Let's call it that. And that, as a result of that, uh, she had always had that kind of inner DNA—the the, the rights of the masses to be able to get a decent wage, to have decent employment possibilities. And so she linked those two ideas: the you know, the Catholic principles of the Catholic people, and and the workers' rights to be able to do that. And that's that I think stayed with her really throughout the course of her life.
0: Now the Catholic Worker was not founded solely by. Dorothy Day, she had a co founder. I believe his name was Peter Moran. Yes, Peter Moran is a really interesting character. Peter Moran
1: was 20 uh, some years older than Dorothy Day was at the time when this was, and and the, the time was 1933 when they actually began these two efforts of the newspaper and the first houses of hospitality that they created. But Peter was this really curious character. He was older than her, uh, much older than her. He was an itinerant preacher of the Gospels, French. He came fully equipped with clothes that had been handed down to him. He, he thought poverty—he he loved lady poverty in the same way St. Francis did and thought that poverty was a gift from God, not the end result of a badly lived or poorly lived life. So he convinces her that living a life of poverty and self-denial is, is what the gospel calls you to do. He loves the saints. He sees in the life of the saints— A model for life. He says we shouldn't be, Peter Morin teaches Dorothy Day that we shouldn't be tracking historical events by wars, which is traditionally what history is taught as, but in fact to look at some of the lives of these saints and the great things that they did. Consider them to be your markers throughout the course of history. So he was a huge influence on her initial. And and you know, what was nice about Dorothy Day, despite the fact that the film is about that I've done is on Dorothy Day, we give a a nice portion in the film to, to Peter Morin and his influence on her because she always credited Peter Morin with, seeing the world in a different way through his eyes, and that what a great influence he really was for her.
0: Now, I have a couple more questions about Peter Morin. So my understanding is that at one point, at least, he had been affiliated with an order or a a society within the Catholic Church called the Christian Brothers. Is that correct? I think he was, yes. Well, what's interesting to me about that is the Christian Brothers will sometimes say with some humble pride that they had exactly one priest among them, and that was their founder, Jean-Baptiste de La Salle, and that everyone else is a very committed layperson. It's, It's not necessarily an order that is against the hierarchy of the Church, but they're very proudly outside of the hierarchy of the Church. And I'm wondering if you, in your creation of this biography, this film biography of Dorothy Day, if you encountered some of that I don't even know what to call it maybe anti-clericalism or resistance to working with the clerical hierarchy of the church in the catholic worker movement. Yeah well that's a good
1: example about Peter Moran he obviously he lived a life that really was celibate he lived a life of total poverty. His obedience was to the gospel. So in some ways, you could say he actually lived the same life as an ordained man would have in a religious order, but chose not to go in that direction. He just just wanted to live, live it independently. And he, he winds up for 17 years being the big influence on Dorothy Day. And she does, too. She lives the same kind of life. She had... She had a child when she was younger, out of, she wasn't married. She had a child out of wedlock, as they would say. Uh, but other than that, she lives a rather sort of monastic-like life uh, of prayer, daily prayer, on a regular, you know, she's praying the rosary and, and living what, uh, you know, a religious order's life would be like. And yet at the same time, there's never been any conversation about her becoming, starting a religious order. I know that there was people who suggested that she might start her own religious order, but that was not going to be part of Dorothy Day's way. She, she saw a different direction and a different possibility for herself. In some ways, it's a very American story when you think about it. I mean, she's going to go her own way and do her own thing and the heck with what everybody else is thinking. I'm, but I am going
0: to call this thing Catholic. Well, so she wanted to call it Catholic, but she wanted it to be outside of the kind of institutional hierarchy of the Church. What's the relationship today between the Catholic worker movement and the Church? Is is it still that they use the word Catholic, but they are not necessarily affiliated in any way with the Church, or are priests now involved? What's the connection now? Yeah.
1: Well, yes. I mean, first of all, in the United States alone, there are 70 million Catholics, and they do not all think or act the same way, and that's absolutely clear, so you would have uh, some pockets of uh, within the Catholic world that would not think so highly of Dorothy Day and other pockets certainly that are just devotees of who Dorothy Day was and the legacy that she leaves behind. There is now a movement to have Dorothy Day formally canonized, so there are people now who want to see this woman who was you know a former communist leaning progressive kind of person who had an abortion during her younger years. But now created these these extraordinary this network of homes and basically lived the most extraordinary kind of beatitude life and they want to see her canonized so it kind of runs the gamut i i 'm getting letters too uh, from people who 've heard that I 'm making the film and they 're saying, well doblemar's now making a film about communists that 's his thing now and uh, it's you, you know I, you, you can sense that even during her own life the kind of pushback that she probably received. But the Catholic Church, now, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, give give it a little bit of time, and so many more people come around, and now from a distance, people look back at her and think, you know, maybe she was the prophet in our midst, and we should have listened more carefully.
0: So you mentioned that there's a movement right now to canonize her, to recognize her as a saint. Was that something that she aspired to? Did she want to be a saint? I think towards the end of her life, if you see
1: some of the writings and you and you hear how people reacted to her, they were already calling her a saint when she was late in her 70s. And she's famously uh, supposed to have said, you know, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. Whether she actually said that, I don't know. It's been reported that she said that. But, uh, you, know, for, you know, I would find it hard to believe that she didn't really want to become a saint because she honored and revered the saints, studied their lives, tried to emulate them. So I think it's only fair that she gets her own
0: time. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with filmmaker Martin Doblmeier. We're talking about his recent film made with Journey Films called Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Martin Doblmeier. He and his company, Journey Films, have made the recent biography, Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day Story, about the founder of the Catholic worker movement, Dorothy Day. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you got into filmmaking, because you've now made 30 films. Yeah, a little more, probably, yeah. probably 35, <laughs> <laughs> depends on how you measure them, yeah. So, and, and all of them, in my understanding, or the majority of them, have a focus on sort of the way that faith impacts culture and extraordinary lives of faith. Uh, what was it that got you into that kind of storytelling? I have an undergraduate degree in religion
1: and a master's degree in television, filmmaking, broadcast journalism. So there's always been an interest for me to figure out how to understand what's going on from a religion point of view and then how to communicate that. And so I never really sort of fell off the, the road to be going off in different directions this has kind of been my life and I, I you know, when I I left commercial television I did a couple of years three years of commercial television so I could learn my craft and if you will and then when I left to decide to go and do these films about religion topics the guys in the community of, of men that men and women that I was with uh, making their their films said to me religion I can't believe you're going to make films on religion you'll be out of ideas in six months and here we are 35 films later we're still making these films There's never a shortage of ideas good ideas but this the funding is not as not easy to get we have to get the funding for each one of the films but but for me you know it, it sounds in some ways simple and naive but I always felt as though why couldn't I create a place for myself that would allow me and justify me to read the kind of books that I like to read and to meet the kind of people that I enjoy in, engaging with and If I could maybe make films and somebody would have interest in it, I could keep doing that. And it just led from one film to the next to the the next, and I've never regretted a day of it.
0: Now, one of the things that I think maybe listeners don't realize is that oftentimes when people go into the, the academic study of religion, they do so not necessarily as believers, they do so as kind of skeptics. I teach in, and I have taught in a variety of religious studies and theology departments, at various universities, and I've often been surprised when my colleagues tell me that this is their perspective on approaching religion. And so I don't know much about your background. Was that your background? Did you come to the religious studies in college, the study of religion as a skeptic, or did you come as a believer? I started out as a believer,
1: but over the course of these years, I've had my moments of skepticism, clearly. I've had my moments of doubt, clearly. But I think in some ways it's wisened and sharpened my understanding of, of God and how God's working in the world. And that's always what I wanted to do. I have to say it's possible to do my work and ask thoughtful, provoking questions to people about their faith beliefs and what motivates them and do all that. I don't think in the end God's going to ask me, how did I do a good job asking the questions, I think in the end I'm going to be held accountable for what I did with those answers and what answers I came up with for myself. And so I'm always thinking like that. So it's one thing to ask the questions. It's another thing to make a decision in your own life about the path you're going to take.
0: Now, I want to make sure that I'm hearing your answer correctly, because sometimes when people get into filmmaking with a religious theme, they have an evangelical purpose. Their desire is to push a particular viewpoint about God. You know, I I was too old for this, but my little brother grew up watching Veggie Tales, which is, I think some listeners will remember, was sort of an animated series that told biblical stories, but from the standpoint of kind of, you know, cute and attractive animated figures that were shaped like vegetables and fruits. But what I'm hearing in your answer is that you did not have you did not have a desire to push a particular view of religion when you made these films. Instead, if I'm hearing you correctly, your desire was to listen to the viewpoint and the world experience of the person that was on the other end of the camera. Have I heard that correctly?
1: Yeah, that's right, David. I,
0: to me, um, what I really
1: wanted to do is to get a, a deeper understanding of how to ask the questions. Mm. And But I also have to say it was not just of other people. I have to ask the questions of myself each one of the films that I make, I have to hold myself accountable that the the concerns that are raised, the themes that are raised, the hopes and dreams that are raised in each one of the films also applies to me like it applies to everybody else. And I have to, I can't have a sense of detachment from that. And I hope that's what enables me to make a film that, you know, be, gives you plenty to think about. After you watch the film, you can go off and go to Starbucks and hang around for a while and really talk about the things that matter. I was with a group of students last night from Loyola. And um a table. They asked me to come and sit at their table, and we talked a little bit. And one of the women said that she chose to get into religious studies because she had studied other disciplines. But this one on religion made her think about herself in totally different ways and that's going to be her life's direction. So, and I, I went through that myself. I mean, that's exactly what happened. But in order to continue to do that, you have to have some kind of vent that's a professional vent. You have to be able to make a living somehow doing it. And I, I chose the filmmaking. So coupling the interest, the keen interest in religion and the filmmaking actually gave me the pathway to go forward. And I, I understand too that when I get the chance to sit down and talk to people, whether it's, uh, you know, tick Khan or Elie Wiesel or Desmond Tutu and these people that I've had the honor, B- Billy Graham, the honor to sit down and talk to them. They don't talk to me because I'm Martin Doblemeyer. They talk to me because I'm a filmmaker and I'm making a film that they're somehow involved in and they'll give me the time. And I know that. But I also tried to bring with that an awareness that uh, I, I have to listen to this with my own hearing, see it through my own lens and be able to communicate it not only for others, but also for myself. Now, you just
0: rattled off casually a list of names that I think anyone who has been paying attention to religion in the 20th century would kind of have their jaws drop at. You got a chance to have conversations with Thich Nhat Hanh and Billy Graham and several other of major luminaries of the sort of wide spectrum of major religious figures of the 20th century. So I would like you, Martin Doblmeier, sitting across the table from me right now to think about Martin Doblmeier from 35 years ago who was just getting started. Could you have imagined that you would be able to sit at a table like this, and to be able to say, I have had these conversations when you first got started. Was that was that even the dream, or did you not even imagine that when you first got started? No, no, I, I didn't really imagine
1: it. I was going after it <laughs> in some ways I was. But the first serious interview that I ever did f- for this kind of religion filmmaking that I wanted to do was in 1980, and it was with Mother Teresa. She had won the Nobel Prize for Peace, and it was making her first trip to the United States. And I went up to New York... And I had a conversation, spent a couple of days with the Missionaries of Charity. Sister Priscilla Lewis was uh, the head of the the American chapter of the Missionaries of Charity. And and I guess she liked me. I mean, I was very young. And uh, she kind of liked me. And she said, look, there's lots of requests to interview Mother Teresa. I'm giving the first one to you and the only one to you. And you will get this amount of time with her. And you can spend the whole day with her. And you can ask her whatever you want. And so here I am, a young guy in my 20s. I'm just, you know... I, I don't know how, what else to do. Other than I'm sort of stumbling and fumbling around, but she couldn't have been more gracious, and she had come. And there was there were literally uh, you know, f- herds of media outside the fence, and I was the only one allowed to come in and sit down and spend the time with her and ask her the questions. And we did a, a lovely little film, and she was very engaging, and that that kind of convinced me. That you know maybe I, maybe I have a chance here maybe there 's an opportunity to listen and to watch this, and eh, maybe if God uh, has a plan for me, I might have a have a chance here to do something
0: that 's an incredible opportunity and an incredible opportunity for basically a person who is just starting out. How mentally did you prepare for that moment? What did you do? What did you say to yourself? What did you do to get organized to make that a successful moment? Well, in typical Mother Teresa form, you didn't get much preparation.
1: She gave me 42 hours, 48 hours. I remember that she told me, you know, if you want to, she called, uh, Sister Priscilla calls me up and says, Martin, I know you've been up here. You've been asking about doing an interview with Mother Teresa. She's going to be here the day after tomorrow. And I've decided that you're the only person that I'm going to allow to do an interview with her. So you have to be here with your crew and ready to go in 48 hours. And I said, well, I I haven't got the crew ready. I have to, Martin, if God wants this to happen, you will be here. And 48 hours later, I was there with a crew and we were able to do it and, and, and I thought she was she was great and gracious and left me with a memory and, and a conviction that every once in a while you get these opportunities. And if, if you can take it if you if you see it as a sign for what might be possible later on down in your life, then do it and go. And she wrote me this wonderful letter afterwards I still have that says, I wish Martin all of the very best as he begins on the, on this path. And so in some way she kind
0: of like she gave me her blessing to go forward. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton we're speaking today with Martin Doblemeyer. He's a filmmaker with a thirty-five year history of making films. We're talking about his recent film, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. So when you are preparing to make a film, and I notice that when I read the sort of biography blurbs that we get in preparation for these kind of interviews, it very specifically lists you as a storyteller. And I love that description. And so I'd like to ask you, because I'm aware that, for example, in 2006, there was a film about Dorothy Day that was made that's called Dorothy Day, Don't Call Me a Saint. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's already been stories about Dorothy Day told. And so when you begin the process of a new film, what do you go through in your mind to say, how is it that I want to tell this story, approach this story, find the beats of this story so that it is different from or original to or inspiring for the kind of goals that you want for your audience? What's your mental process like for that?
1: Well, I I try not to be intimidated if anybody else has actually tried to do something. About half the time, I won't watch something. That's already been done by somebody else just because I don't want to feel as though I'm sort of stepping on their territory. The woman who made that film that you mentioned is Claudia Larson. She's out in Los Angeles, and I had conversations with Claudia. She's just a, she's a great gal, and, uh, and she gave me her blessing to go ahead and make the film. But I have made now 35 films, and I thought I could handle it and try and get some kind of a film made. And, and I saw this film on uh, Dorothy Day as part of a series. We're in the midst of a a, a series now called Prophetic Voices that include four I think, really, luminaries of the 20th century. So the first one was on the great public theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Second one was on the African American theologian Howard Thurman, who was such a great influence on Martin Luther King Jr. and the entire civil rights movement. Third one now is on Dorothy Day, and the last one will be on Rabbi Abraham Heschel. So taken together, they actually give us a sort of a spectrum of faith and personalities. And, you know, you ask, how do I, how do I approach it? Well, in this particular case, a Dorothy Day film, I'm trying to make make it in some ways having some of the similar rhythms and beats of the other films, that there's a sense that all four of them have continuity to them, and yet at the same time try to make them different. The process is pretty simple for me, David. I mean, I just... I commit to something. I go all. I go all in. I my my shelf becomes. I clear out a shelf, and that, that shelf now a couple of weeks later is stocked with books. I find everything I possibly can, and then do, and we just go for it. Each one of the films that I do, I I probably have some starting place already in my mind that I've you know have come across things we have lots of people that we've dealt with over the years I can have some initial meetings with and think fundamentally I think that I have to be able to accumulate in my own mind the basics of the story arc and then be rather clear when I sit down and start to do interviews with people how their commentary is going to help me navigate through the story arc. And
0: yet at the same time, I have to always be open to the surprises that will come.
1: Inevitably, they do.
0: So for listeners that may not have thought about how stories get put together, the terminology that we're using, story arc and story beats, a very basic example of story beats would be, and you've probably heard this, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, happy ending. So those are story beats. Those are sort of moments where you can say the story has a a momentum in a direction, and then it turns in a new direction until it hits another turning point. And you mentioned that these four films, which are about Niebuhr and are going to move through the story of Abraham Joshua Heschel, that they have some similarities in terms of those story beats. And if you're comfortable sharing what you think of as those story beats, I would love to hear kind of how you see each of these four films. What are their turning points?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, in in some ways, the turning points are always the moments of conversion, uh, when a light goes off for that person and that their life then becomes changed. And so for Dorothy Day, who is raised in a family that never went to church, there was very little religion at all in her family, Dorothy Day. And yet she always admitted that she felt that God was haunting her. That's the the phrase that she uses. And I love that phrase. You know, God was always haunting me. There's sort of a tone to that that says it, God is always around, and and I can accept it or not, but God God doesn't change. God's always there. Eugene O'Neill introduced Dorothy Day to the uh, Victor the uh, later Victorian poem of the Hound of Heaven, which becomes this real sort of epic tale for for Dorothy Day about how God. You can turn away from God, but God is still always hounding after you, haunting you like a like a hound would, and. You, you're eventually probably going to weigh you down. And that whole notion of the turns in her life that sort of brought her into the direction that she wanted to go into, that was a clear turning point for her. And, and I mean, you can look at other turning points, too, for people like... Uh, Howard Thurman who's just a great unsung character of the of the civil rights movement and and he's made decisions too that uh, you you see that these turning points for him and how he's going to go and live, live his life in a different way and that's fundamentally what I'm always looking for you know the opportunity that we kind of have a sense of where we want to go each one of us but we need opportunities that reinforce us and markers in our lives that say, you know, this is confirming what it is I think I need to be doing. And I'll, I, it's given me sort of a renewed energy now to keep going on it.
0: And you also mentioned that you always want to be, you, you have a sense of kind of how the story is going to go, but you always want to be open to the surprises that you might discover along the way. What are some examples of, of surprises that either in the in this film, Revolution of the Heart about Dorothy Day or other films that you've made, when have you gone into a story and been surprised that it has gone in a, in a direction that you haven't expected?
1: There's always a surprise somewhere, and I think the ho- the whole notion for the Dorothy Day story. One of the things that really surprises me, and I didn't know this, and uh, people oh, people always ask, well, what surprised you when you were making this film? I think the big surprise for me was that Dorothy Day in uh, the 19 teens, 1917, is out on the streets campaigning for women's rights to vote. So she was a classic public suffragette out there campaigning for And she gets beaten as a result of it. Gets put in jail. They thought her back was broken. She really got beaten to a pulp at the Occoquan prison uh, just outside Washington, D.C. And Strangely enough, she gets. They release Dorothy Day and and the other women during that particular f- form of protest. After about three weeks, she was in about twenty days in total, and then, for reasons nobody seems to know, she winds. She never, throughout the course of her life, ever voted. No reason for it. I asked the granddaughters, "What? Well, how's this possible?" And they, they they sort of sort of back off a little bit. They're not quite sure. I had to answer it. I mean, they. You hear that, uh, you know, fundamentally, Dorothy Day was an anarchist, always speaking to the established inst- institution of the United States. And, and how can you now speak against it and at the same time go out and vote? That was kind of the, the way she behaved. But, you know, there's always these elements within the film that all of a sudden tell you, no, I have to give a little bit more time to that in the film. I have to, I have to, people will be moved by that or people will be surprised by that like I was. And so we give it a little bit more time in the film to talk about that. But I think it's a really, it's an interesting twist in a life of a woman who's, who's so
0: politically and socially active and yet at the same time won't go into the voting booth and cast a vote. You mentioned asking her descendants about this, her granddaughters, and you say they kind of backed away. Now that you are on the far side of gathering information and telling the story, would you feel that you could venture to imagine why she would fight for the rights to vote, but then choose not to vote herself? Or is that something that you also would be hesitant to try and answer? Well, I can't answer with any kind of definitive response, but the speculation
1: that she may have voted in local elections, Uh, she makes a distinction, David, between she refuses to pay federal taxes... Throughout the course of her life, she does not pay her taxes. She and Donald Trump have this very thing in common publicly defiant about not paying their taxes. And at one point, the federal government tells her that you owe about $300,000. And she defiantly says, Well, why don't you give a closer calculation to see how much I owe and I won't pay it? And she doesn't. But she did pay. Her local community taxes because she felt an obligation to reimburse the people who were paying for the fire department and the police department and the local municipal services that she was receiving. So she makes a big distinction between federal taxes, which she's fearful will go towards the war machine, and to local taxes. Uh, and she may have made that same kind of distinction in terms of voting. Two, she didn't. Vo- she did not vote in uh, federal elections. We that's absolutely true. Whether or not she actually voted in local community elections seems to be unclear. But uh, her grandchildren, uh, uh, very intelligent, both women that I spoke to in the film, not really a good response as to why. They just don't seem to know, other than the fact that she was fundamentally an anarchist, and so you can't be speaking this kind of truth to power and then participating in the system. What's clear is that she just did not vote.
0: Well, and, and so sort of my final question following on this, which I find fascinating, and I was surprised to hear this just a moment ago, just like you were surprised in the process of making the film, how are decisions made in the Catholic worker houses? Are they, Do they put decisions to a vote? Is it more a consensus model? You, you keep describing her as an anarchist. I'm trying to see, because eventually somebody's got to wash the dishes. Somebody's got to make sure that you know the clothes get cleaned. And that's a great
1: question, because the truth of the matter is they proudly will tell you that each ca- each house is free to govern itself and take care of itself and regulate itself, however way it chooses. The Catholic worker houses are not franchises. They don't have a common logo or they don't have a common uh, you know uh, rule of laws that they have to adhere to. They have principles that they all want to adhere to, that they're, that they're here first to, to sort of live the life of Christ, uh, to be available in terms of living the Beatitudes, that they will be there to take care of the needs of the hungry and the poor in their midst, uh, that sort of personal response to everybody who comes and asks for help but they're not it's like herding cats they just don't really have uh, they don't care to have a really solid organizational institutionalized structure that's just the way they are so they'll all make decisions locally about who's doing the dishes and who's cleaning up and who's going off to get some who's going to hit the uh, what's left over in, in terms of fruits and vegetables at whole foods and things like that
0: they'll they'll come up with it their own way if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with filmmaker Martin Doblemeyer about his recent film, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org podcast. That's commonwealmagazineorg slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today we're speaking with Martin Doblmeier. He's a filmmaker with a 35-year history, making films with a focus on lived faith. Today we're talking about his recent biography of Dorothy Day, Revolution of the Heart. So why make a film about Dorothy Day now, what is the message of Dorothy Day that speaks to this moment? I think that Dorothy Day, yes, was, I think, the most
1: interesting, engaging, fascinating creature of the 20th century. She, and she, the, the reason why we're making this film and the other films that we're calling part of a series on prophetic voices is because I think they have a lot to say to us today. I think in, in many ways, what Dorothy Day calls us to do is to think about the possibility of life in community. There's a real sense that we are obligated to live a life within the full awareness of the lives of others around us. And that's a sign to a nation, our nation, that is so fixed on individualism that the notion of caring for the others in our midst and to building community around that, I think, is really, really a wonderful model. It was a model of self-denial, too. Her model was a model that says, look, we're going to live a life of poverty and we're going to take care of those people who are in our midst. That's not a message you get from most of what's going on television or in the newspapers or the media today. Most of it is to the, you know, the rapid accumulation and reckless accumulation of wealth. And I think, that there's, I think we've all got a sense in our country that maybe we've let that go too far. And I think she sends out a signal that you can live without. You know, her famous line is, "If you have two coats, give one to the person who needs it." Uh, and that whole notion of personalism—that's one of the things I. Uh, when when you see the film, I, I tried my best to to thread the whole notion of personalism throughout the entire film. And what I meant by that, what she meant by that, what she lived by that was to say. We have huge problems, social and political problems in our country, and they can be overwhelming. And the first thing that a a rational person may do is to look at those problems and be so overwhelmed, you sort of back off and become paralyzed. And what she was basically saying is you don't necessarily have to fix everything, but you have the opportunity and, in her mind, the obligation to take care of the problem with the person who is right there in front of you. That's what she meant about personalism, that as especially from a Christian point of view, you have an obligation to take care of the person who's needy in your midst. You don't send them off to a social s- service agency. You take care of those people yourself. There's a line in the film that she delivers. We actually found some archival footage where she says, when somebody comes up to you and says they're hungry, you don't say, go be thou filled you feed them. That's fundamentally what you do. And one of the things that I think that she really shows us is that she lived a rather instinctive life. She would see a need that was in front of her and she responded to it. But how do you get to the point where you actually see that the trick that we all try to sort of accomplish in our lives is to blind ourselves to what's all that's going on and live in our little silos. And yet she was the one who would actually say, no, that's not the way that we're supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to live our lives with a sense of openness and an awareness, see the needs in front of us, and then respond. So to me, I think there's a lot that she has to say to a culture that continues to go down a path that she was well aware of, and yet she resisted with every bone in her body. The whole notion, too, about the huge experience expenditures that continue to happen in her day and now happen in our own day for military weaponry. Her first response was, this is absolutely immoral. That's how she would think. And that all of that money, all those resources could be used for such better things and that God, Christ, calls us to be peacemakers. And in this case, what that means and for her and what she would interpret means for all of us is that we have to put the weapons down and think in terms of how we can serve each other and not protect ourselves from each other.
0: Now, pacifism and socialism, I grew up in the 1980s. There was a real animosity towards those ideas, particularly socialism. I I grew up in a military family and I had relatives who would wear t-shirts that had things emblazoned on them like, kill a commie for your mommy. But as you and I are speaking... I'm aware that Senator Bernie Sanders and congressional members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they're openly espousing some form of socialist ideals or some, some form of redistribution of resources that are pushing against the idea of constantly feeding the military-industrial complex. Do you feel like the message of Dorothy Day, the message of the Catholic worker movement— has more fertile soil to reference that uh, that parable of the the ways that the seeds go, some on rocky soil and some on fertile soil. is there more fertile soil now for this kind of message is, are, is your is your film coming at an opportune time for that reason as well that 's a good question I, I think it is i think
1: that I think people realize that as the amount of money that we are putting into the the, our national efforts, military efforts, have, has to become questioned. It has to be. And I think Dorothy Day would be the first one to get out there and say something about that. You know, I've already begun doing special events, screenings for the film around the country. And what's been interesting to me is that I've already been confronted. I'm getting emails from people saying, well, is now doing films about communists. And I haven't heard the word communist, frankly, in a long time, but now I'm hearing it again. People saying, well, you're doing films about communists. And I say, well, now, wait a minute. Just, you know, think about this in a slightly different way. I was with a, some wonderful people. Uh, last week, we did a screening event in New England, and uh, the woman was the mother—actually, uh, she was the mother of two young men who are now serving in Iraq. And she was almost in tears— saying that "I, I believe my son is off doing the right thing by serving our country, protecting our values, and what you are showing me with this Dorothy Day woman is that her interpretation is that's all wrong. That everything, everything my son is doing, and I'm I'm really struggling with that. And and I want to say that there were people within the Catholic Worker movement that would, especially during Vietnam and during World War II. I mean, she was she had the houses open already in World War II. She had volunteers who were coming in, and I think arguably you would say maybe the, the World War II was the last undeniably good war, if you want to call it that, and yet she would say, no, I, you know, I, I think Christ, Jesus Christ's model is to be peacemakers and we can't be prescribing, you know, military action as a response to this. Other people would say that's totally naive. That's almost to the point of immoral to be that naive. And yet she would, she didn't see it that way. But she would always say, David, she would always say, you have to make your own decision. You have to deal with your own conscience. My conscience, she says, would be that I have to be what I think
0: Jesus calls us to be total
1: pacifists, and that's what we're gonna do.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. we're speaking today with Martin Doblemeyer. He's a filmmaker with a 35-year career. We're talking about his recent film, Revolution of the Heart, The Dorothy Day Story. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that this was one of four films that you've made with a theme called prophetic voices. And we also, earlier in the conversation, mentioned that whether it's a true statement or not, that she said, don't call me a saint, don't dismiss me that easily, that Dorothy Day was resistant in some ways to the idea of sainthood. But characterizing her as a prophet, that's an interesting question. How do you think she would have reacted, not to the title of saint, but to the title of prophet?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. So here's how we're making a distinction between a prophetic voice. I'm not making the argument that a prophetic voice is only that person who looks to the future and tells us what's around the corner. In some ways, uh, it's kind of the model that's been given to us by someone like a Walter Brueggemann, who talks about the prophetic imagination. We're talking about people, and I think Dorothy Day is classically one of them, who somehow reveals to us the heart of God. I mean, it's just that simple. There are stories about how there were times at the Catholic worker where she would be so overwhelmed by the pain and suffering that was around her, she'd close the door to her own room and she would cry. And the prophet always is the one who somehow feels at a deeper level all the pain and anguish and disappointment that is happening right in our midst because of how we care for or fail to care for each other and how God's heart is breaking wide open as a result of that. So I see the prophetic voice as the person who not necessarily predicts the future, although there there may be some examples of that here and there, but the truth of the matter is that someone who reveals to us the heart of God and where God is hurting most of all, right now. And if you listen to these stories about Dorothy Day and the way that she behaved, I think in, in many ways she was exactly that.
0: I want to follow on that question because I as you've been answering and as I've been talking to you, I've been thinking about the prophet Amos. And for listeners that are unfamiliar with the story of the prophet Amos, he goes from the southern kingdom of Israel to the northern kingdom to basically tell the northern kingdom that they need to stop making war and, and stop, you know, doing the things they're doing. And he's told to go away, and he's dismissed, and, and uh, Amaziah the priest famously says, we don't want you prophets around here. And Amos responds, and he says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I'm a herdsman. I'm a dresser of sycamores. And what I love about that in the context of this conversation is that Amos says, don't call me a prophet, call me a laborer. Call me someone that does work. And as I'm hearing you describe Dorothy Day, my sense is that if you were to ask her, are you a saint? Are you a prophet? She would have a similar answer to Amos. No, I'm with the laborers. I'm with the people that, that are toiling. And first of all, have I heard that correctly in what you've been describing, or would you describe it a different way? No, no, I think that's a great
1: example. I mean, there are famous stories where people would come in gushing over having the opportunity to meet Dorothy Day, and she says, well, I'm glad that you're here. Could you help me go clean the toilets? Or can you go with me? I have to go pick up some food, or this car is broken down. Can you do this? I mean, she was in some ways pragmatic to a fault, but that's how she felt as though she had to behave in order to keep these little operations called the Catholic Worker Houses of Hospitality in motion. So she probably wouldn't have had a lot of time to sit around and think of herself as a prophet, at least from the materials that I'm always able to to, to garner as, uh, to, in doing the research that we've all, always done. I think that she was the kind of person who was not spending a lot of time thinking about herself as she was mostly the champion of the poor. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things that's the big loss with Dorothy Day. I think that in that period of time between the 1930s and the 1950s when she was alive and active and out there championing, the poor had a genuine champion champion, to speak for them. Uh, You know, you can see it in different ways, but to me, I'm not exactly sure who that person is anymore. When I did the film on Reinhold Niebuhr, who was the great American public theologian of the last century, I was asking every night, who were some of the public theologians in our day and age? And it was really interesting to see very intelligent, very educated people come to these events that we were having. And they were looking to each other, thinking, well, uh, who is the who is the public theologians of our day? And they'd stammer around, and maybe they'd mention William Barber, his name came up occasionally. Jim Wallace, who you know, Jim Wallace from Sojourners, his name came up occasionally. Uh, Eric Dyson came up once or twice. But there was clearly nobody... And there certainly weren't a number of people who they would identify as the public prophets, the, the, the public theologians of our day. And I think in some ways we, there's reasons for that,
0: but I think we
1: really we really miss them. And
0: we're, we're the losers for not having them. You mentioned that when you're trying to think about how to approach the creation of a biography like this, you look for certain story points. And one story point that you talked about that is always important to tell is that moment of conversion. And so what we're talking about when we're talking about good storytelling is we're talking about capturing change and those moments of change and making them real for viewers and for the audience to experience to some extent what that change must have felt like. But now I'm gonna turn the camera around a little bit and ask, as you are making these stories, as you have been creating this story about Dorothy Day, for example, maybe after thirty-five films you have a distance from it and it doesn't change you anymore. But I'm betting that i'm wrong in saying that and that maybe you had a moment or two where you found yourself changed by what you were discovering in the process of telling this story.
1: Well, you want a true confession? I'll give you one. The truth of the matter is that i i'm on a on a ridiculous personal schedule right now. I mean, i'm 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 uh, doing special events all across the country. My travel schedule is is unhealthy (laughs) and just ridiculous at the least. And at the same time, every free minute that I have, I'm arcing out and writing the script for the next film that's going to be finished on Abraham Heschel. And I made the decision a number of weeks ago that when I finish this fourth film on Abraham Heschel, having done now Niebuhr and Thurman and Dorothy Day, and then finally finishing Abraham Heschel, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop for a little while because I have to get my own soul back together again. It's actually possible, David, to spend an enormous amount of time reading and consuming material, studying the lives of other people, and feeling as though you've put yourself at risk too. I'm just deciding that I'm going to take a little break from it, and I, and I have to go and get my own spiritual head back in order. Not because I feel I've I've fallen off the wagon or some other kind of thing, but I just need uh, some personal spiritual renewal. I've been humbled by making the, the Dorothy Day film. Uh, she has challenged me to see whether or not I can live my life uh, in, in terms of faith with the same kind of conviction and intensity and focus as she did, and I'm not sure, sure I do. I think most of us, most of us, uh, who even dare to say we live lives of faith would say that we make a lot of compromises over the course of that, that life. And as we go along, and the more comfortable we become, we can even make more and more compromises. Well the, well, the truth of the matter is, I think you look at a model of Dorothy Day, and you wonder how she was able to do it with so few compromises that she lived. Well, I have to take that as a model, too. So I think probably what'll happen for me at the end of the last film that we're doing in the sequence on on Abraham Heschel is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some time to do a little spiritual renewing for myself. I've never taken a sabbatical. You know, professors take sabbaticals, they'll go away for six months or a year, and generally that's to travel to Italy or to sort of vacation or some other kind of way. I'm going to take a, you know, I'm going to take some Sabbath time. I'm going to really stop and select a handful of readings that I hope will be really enriching for me and think about how I'm going to sort of enter this next phase of my life with a lot more sense of that I've I've gotten I've gotten myself a little bit restabilized. I'm sixty nine years old. I've been doing this for a long time. I just need to I just need to sort of do a little corrective measure for myself.
0: What I hear you saying in that is that you have discovered a need for both physical and spiritual self care. As we're coming to the conclusion of our conversation, you have had the chance to look at those who have engaged in a variety of approaches to the spiritual life. Why is it so hard in our culture? to care for ourselves physically and spiritually? Well, I did
1: a film before I started this series of films on the biographical field that we call the prophetic voices. I did a film, major film, two-hour film on chaplains so I spent a lot of time with military chaplains and police chaplains, prison chaplains, hospital chaplains, and and certainly you hear again and again and again the thing that uh, they're really good at caring for everybody else's spiritual issues, but they oftentimes run themselves into the ground <laughs> and don't take care of themselves. So that's always been working on the back of my mind about that kind of ability to do good things for so long that you actually start to do some kind of destructive things to yourself. And you have, I think you do have to be careful for that. That's what I'm intending on doing, taking a little bit of time and sort of, I'm really looking forward to it, actually, to be honest with you, to, to stop a little bit and sort of change the rhythms and the patterns of my life for a while and to see whether or not, how, how I can I sort of sit back honestly and objectively and accumulate what it is that I've been blessed to be able to do over these last years and see what it all
0: adds up to. We've been talking about your film about Dorothy Day, Revolution of the Heart. If listeners are interested in seeing that film, how would they go about getting a chance to see it? Well, it's going to start airing nationally on public television March 6th for
1: Women's History Month. So I'm thrilled that we have a film about a committed person of faith as an example of an american story on a woman's story on on public television so that's a that's a great opportunity and we'll have all kinds of information about the film available on our website it's journeyfilms.com and we have educational material a lot of people ask us how can we use your films in the classroom, in seminaries, in congregations, and teach and use them in that way. And then we've created all this educational material for this film, too, Dorothy Day, but also, too, for Howard Thurman and for Reinhold Niebuhr. It's all there, so we, we encourage people to use it and to comment. Uh, they can send comments about what's working for them and what we might have missed, what we didn't do a good job with. We're always open to hearing that.
0: Well, Martin Doblemeyer, I am so thankful to learn more about the amazing life of Dorothy Day through your work. But I'm also just so struck that you made the decision when you were a younger person to try and become a storyteller that would lift up what is really and truly good about lives of faith and to showcase them for others. Thank you so much for making that choice all those years ago, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about that with me and my listeners today. It's my honor to be here, David. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Martin Doblmeier. His company, Journey Films, has made over 30 films about various religious figures through the last three decades. His most recent film, which will be airing in March on PBS stations across the country... Is called Revolution of the Heart, the Dorothy Day Story. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio.
1: You're done. You did a great job, David. Thank you. You did a terrific job.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad you think so.